0: Hello, I am your NBN host, Lavinia Stan. We are talking today with Professor Ruti Taitel, the Ernest C. Stifel Professor of uh, Comparative Law at the New York Law School, co-director of the Center for International Law and director of the Institute for Global Law, Justice and Policy. Uh, Professor Taitel is also affiliated faculty with um, NIU International Relations. Hello.
1: Hi, wonderful to be here, Lavinia. Uh,
0: Thank you for uh, accepting our invitation. A graduate of Cornell University, Professor Taitel is an internationally recognized authority on international law, international human rights, and comparative constitutional law. But today, we are talking to her because of her outstanding work on transitional justice, applauded not only by legal academics and practitioners, but also by those addressing these issues in the fields of political science, public policy, sociology, and philosophy. Professor Taitel's monograph published with Oxford University Press in year 2000, established transitional justice as a field of scholarly inquiry. Professor Taitel is the author of numerous articles and book chapters, as well as several other books. The most recent one, titled Globalizing Transitional Justice, Essays for the New Millennium, was published by Oxford University Press in 2014, whereas Humanity's Law appeared in hardback in 2011 and in paperback in 2013. Her work has gained quite a following among scholars and practitioners alike, and has inspired many to look into issues of transitional justice. Her book, Transitional Justice, was translated into Serbian and published in Belgrade in 2014 and also translated in Chinese and Spanish. But I also know that it has been cited by thousands of authors working on transitional justice on virtually all continents. Professor Taitel, thank you very much for accepting this interview. Uh, I have to ask, first of all, Was your interest in reckoning with the atrocities of the recent past in any way informed by your personal experience in Argentina? Could you please tell us more about your journey from Argentina, the country of your birth, to the United States?
1: Thank you so much for this very generous introduction and opportunity to reflect on my book, uh, both uh, about my past and and the book's legacy. Uh, in terms of Argentina, yes, I was born there and my parents were born there uh, and from family that escaped to Argentina from Germany. So you could say that it was already predetermined that I would be interested in a number of, of Justice scenarios and uh and pasts. Um- Argentina was going through repression at that time we We were already in the states. I was studying in the states, but we would go back and forth because my father worked for the United nations and uh, so we would uh, go every year or two years uh, to um, uh, for home leave and It was already evident um, uh, y- young people were being stopped in the street uh, there was a high police and security force presence and so we stopped going um uh, uh, during that time and i was very interested i already became interested in the period and then as change occurred uh there were meetings in new york that i attended uh, and at one of those meetings, uh, I was—I had just graduated law school, uh, there was a, a, an editorial board member for the New York Times, David Unger, who had a personal interest in Argentina. And he reached out to me because as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, he um, was interested in having someone write a backgrounder on Argentina and uh, on, in particular, the debate that they were confronting in the immediate post military period which was the first democratically elected president was uh, raul alfonsin and he had uh he had campaigned on accountability and and, but it was very clear that there was military opposition to it. And so there was uh, uh, an issue both in Argentina, but also Uruguay and Chile. And so there was a, a, a backgrounder that needed to be prepared because the Council on Foreign Relations, as you know, a leading think tank, uh, both in the States and um, with an uh, influence uh, L- outside of the states they wanted to have someone discuss uh, and entertain what options there might be and uh, you know r- rule of law on rule of law and on restoring rule of law in, in Latin America and if you can imagine the hubris because I was just out of law school um, the the question posed was can the southern go re- regain democracy uh, it, without punishment you know if you know it was this debate between punishment and impunity and so that is what got it going. And to add to the hubris, it was a 10-pager. And I was, you know, was working as a young lawyer and I and I never sweated as much over this 10-pager because of the concern that it would have foreign affairs impact and so forth. And in the writing of this 10-pager, which David uh, gave you know, this opportunity to me, uh, because I knew Spanish, I could read the um, the discussions that were happening in, uh, in Argentina at the time, which were very interesting. Uh, I don't know if you know, but the uh, cabinet, uh, the first cabinet... Uh, of the democratically elected president, Raul Alfonsín, whom I would come to meet. And I would come to meet the two cabinet members that were responsible for the accountability uh, legislation. It included two legal philosophers. Imagine a cabinet with two legal philosophers, Carlos Nino, who is a remarkable person, died untimely, and Jaime Malamud. And they ended up drafting the legislation that would allow for prosecutions in Argentina. But anyway, this 10-pager, um, I realized in writing, Writing it, that there was much more to say. And then what happened was history overtook the project. Uh, uh, 89, 90s, early 90s, the changes in Eastern Europe, uh, uh, in Germany, uh, former Soviet bloc. I realized that there would be comparative analysis and phenomena beyond uh, Latin America. So the project took a dramatic leap at that point, And I applied for a grant from the United States Institute of Peace in 91, 92, and then I spent some time at that point, 92, 93, in Prague, and Budapest, in Warsaw, to try to get a better sense for myself of what was happening. So it was really a remarkable period, uh, I have to say, and nothing like that has happened uh, for me uh, since then. Uh, Of course, we have the Arab Spring and so on, but that was really a remarkable period that that informed uh, the progress of my book. And really the conceptualization of it, yeah.
0: So, the 10-pager came uh, at the beginning of the 1990s, and then with all the new democratizations in various uh, regions of the world, uh, you realized that the issues and problems you raised um, in relation to, the, um, to Latin America were pertinent to, to, for other regions of the world and for other countries.
1: Yes, uh, but having said that, and I and I mention this in the very beginning in the preface of my book, the book doesn't doesn't say that there are less that it's a lesson and that everyone should follow what Argentina did. And and believe me, there were people who were going around at that time of you know whether taking the experience from Argentina or from South Africa and and seeking to export it to Hungary or Poland. Uh, it was really just to have that that analysis and to uh, and and really I came away with the sense that societies do draw a line but on their past need to do that but where they draw the line and how they draw the line uh, differs and it depends on a variety of different dimensions. So that was really you're right that it was the early 90s uh, was the the first step of this book uh, conceptualization but then it would be the mid 90s and really, I, I ended up handing it in, I think, in '97, uh, and it took uh, Oxford more than two years to publish it. So that's how it comes out in 2000. Yeah, yeah.
0: But but transitional justice, uh, from what you say, it's a very personal uh, issue yeah. for you, um, and uh, to a certain extent, uh, uh, explains the passion that you uh, you have for these uh, type of questions and and uh, the the passion with uh, which you wrote all your books and you to all these subjects correct
1: well, thank you very much I hope it's passion leavened by some uh, sobriety uh, uh, I would say and I and I also have to say that I never imagined when I wrote that first 10 pager and and not even imagine this with the book that it would uh, continue to be of relevance uh, today and uh, as you know, the uh, subject matter has uh, expanded to a field, and you yourself are involved uh, in in the production of an encyclopedia about transitional justice. So, you know that's the next step, which we can talk about. Which is the next step is when it becomes a field, and 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 this I did I never imagined um, when I first wrote the book. Uh, I, you know, I was a young scholar. I had a fascination, as you say, with the, these in. These issues, but they're really human issues, aren't they? This question of how societies um, change, how they move from uh, periods of repression to more, you know, to liberalization or at least somewhat openings, democratic openings. It's really something that's been with, uh, you know, in human society. Uh, since the beginning, so I, uh, one can't imagine having one answer or one size fits all, a, you know, solution to to the questions. But they do seem endlessly fascinating to me. Yeah,
0: your book has been widely praised for its contribution to defining the field. The Review of Politics, for example, noted that your book is, and I'm citing here, an ambitious effort to look at law and justice in periods of radical political change amounting to a provocative attempt to construct a general theory of transition and to identify the appropriate means for liberal states to respond to prior periods of injustice. In addition, Uh, Times uh, Higher Education Supplement, writes that Titel's book is an ambitious and overarching attempt to understand issues that arise in and out of transitional justice. What are the premises of your book? And what is its argument briefly so that our readers understand?
1: So the book was interdisciplinary and comparative, and I would say an interpretive project. So it, it has normative elements, but the pr- idea was really to interpret the phenomena that w- we were seeing at the time, uh, really remarkable and with great alacrity, uh, almost the entire continent of Latin America, uh, later Central America would go through transition, but Latin America had been plunged in military rule, as you know, during that period. So there was change happening throughout, uh, and as well as Eastern Bloc, and then we would see... Um uh, South Africa as well so m- one of the a- features of my book is to see that this phenomena as um, related that it wasn't uh, authoritarianism in Latin in this, in in in, author- in Latin America and totalitarianism over there one of the features of the of the book is that we I saw relationships between those and and clearly there were proxy battles between the US and Soviets throughout Latin America and Central America so I, that was was uh, already, uh, uh, you know, putting these in one book already, uh, um, you know, sends a message about the phenomena. But the other uh, dimension really was to say that while there wasn't one lesson, that what we saw were that societies uh, throughout the world that were going through political transition in that moment were, were having to draw a line on the past and to... Um, figure out ways to move from illiberal regimes to more liberal regimes. And, um, and that involved, uh, in some cases, new constitutions, in other cases, amending them, uh, sometimes trials, uh, uh, and that we can talk more about Argentina's approach, but it, you know, throughout most of Latin America, they didn't, they eschewed punishment. The military were too strong still. So some of the, uh, important compromises that those countries, uh, dealt with and uh and the uh, the distinctive transitions in post-communist bloc that had gone through much longer periods of occupation and uh, control uh, from Moscow. And so, you know, th- essentially the conclusions were that that uh, societies do need to draw a line, uh, but that um, it was uh, impacted by the nature of the repression, uh, the nature of the legal traditions in those societies, as well as, and this is very important, I think, the the extent or degree of commitment to change so that the societies that really were nominally changing but not not really with that continue to have deep state and I would say Chile at that time you know if you think about how long Pinochet remained the general remained uh, senator for life etc institutions hardly changed the military still had significant power uh, j- even during the political transition um, those so th- those elements those factors weigh heavily in terms of what we saw in terms of transitional justice so that is I think um, you know kind of very Very general, but a summary really of of the conclusions of the first book.
0: Um, Okay. Uh, So, in the case of Argentina and uh, other Latin American countries, how did justice work in those times of transition from military junta to democracy?
1: Yes, uh, so important. Uh, you know, the global South generally uh, is not as recognized in uh, both law and politics, and so I'm delighted to talk about Argentina's experience. And there's a new film, so this is uh, great timing to promote that film. Amazon actually uh, is the platform. It's called Argentina 1985, and it brings to light. It's a docudrama uh, about the the chief prosecutor and the deputy, and the deputy would later become chief prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Luis Moreno Ocampo, and Julio Strassera was the chief prosecutor at the time. And it tells the story, very particular to Argentina, which is Argentina judged itself, okay? It's a successor regime that was able to manage to judge itself. And if we think about around the world for decades, even centuries, how rare that is, okay? Now, what preceded that trial was a truth commission. And um, and we can talk more about that, but what we would later see in Latin America and in other places as well, South Africa is really the most famous truth and reconciliation commission, is that some countries that didn't push for punishment still uh, felt the importance of, of public acknowledgement of contested facts that occurred uh, about uh, about um, co- conflict and about repression, persecution during the bad period. So Argentina really kind of like Germany after World War II, ended up doing it all. They had both a truth commission, which uh, preceded the trials, and the truth commission was headed by a, a world-renowned, uh, uh, a prize-winning author, Ernesto Sabato. And he had on the commission um, uh, clerics, uh, Human Rights activists activists, uh, people of undoubted uh, credibility uh, and legitimacy, and that truth commission produced a report which documented the, the fact of tens of thousands have disappeared, including many children unarmed civilians and that fact is really the central fact that came to light in argentina that the the it really is the response to the f- to the phony claims by the military of a, you know that that were used to justify a dirty war and that justification was throughout latin america there was a, a shared up quote unquote operation um, but that is what the military used, uh, Operacion Condor. They used uh, justification of, of widespread, the claim that there were widespread uh, uh, guerrilla throughout high schools, college. Yes, there were some, very narrow, could easily have been prosecuted and could have been managed by uh, police the way we manage terrorism in democracies today. But uh, a very important uh, response by Argentina. And again, as I said, the trials tend to be neglected. The Truth Commission also often takes a backseat to South Africa. And so I think it's very important. uh, You know, I wrote about this in the chapter on historical justice in my book and also about Argentina's trials in the in the in the chapter on. On criminal justice, uh, but it really was a uh, uh, fragile. It was a fragile moment in Argentina, which this film shows. It could have gone either way. It was important that that the judges, the appellate judges, decided that that to go forward. And, um, and and even where there were jurists that were afraid to join the prosecutorial team, they turned to young lawyers that were motivated, as you say, passionate about the subject matter. And that's what happened in Argentina. And it would later be, I, I think now it's being cited in other, other uh, legal contexts, but it was really... To my mind, um, you know, Germany had ha, right now has its own trials and has had them for decades, but they followed Nuremberg. It was after Control Council Ten and and the occupied trials. Argentina really did something of extraordinary political maturity at that so, time. Yeah. So
0: Argentina, uh, among Latin American countries, is the uh, is the one that organizes this trial of the junta to reflect on the past uh, assign blame for the past what uh, ultimately what is the reason or what are the reasons that make Argentina depart from the Latin American model because other other countries were so keen on uh, on amnesties on um um ignoring uh, let's say the the um, um, uh, court trials for, uh, and, uh, preferring other methods of, uh, of reckoning with the past.
1: Well, I think that uh, the political leadership, Alfonsín, ran on accountability, Raúl Alfonsín, the first democratically elected uh, government. But it has to be said that while there was that burst of energy and that trial in 1985, the important trial of the, of the junta, once there was um, a sense from the military that these would be open-ended, that the next trial and the next one could go to the next level and the deputy colonels and the lower level, um, they resisted. It. And so there was a period of time that Argentina had to stop the trials, and you had sub- successor regimes that amend uh, them with pardons. And then it starts up again decades later with a weaker military, uh, a defunding of the military. So that's part of how Argentina dealt with its uh, de- de- deep state. And so now, you know, you, they're, they're called human rights trials, and there was a lot of support from civil society and the populist parties, Peronist parties for those trials. So I think it's a combination, I would say, of the, of the political vision at the time and civil society in, in, in Argentina. And, um, and then, you know, like the rest of Latin America, there is a period where it's all quite fragile uh, and, and the future is uncertain.
0: So, uh, uh, we talked about uh, Latin America, we talked about um, uh, South Africa, uh, Central and Eastern Europe, the former Soviet Union. How about North America? Is transitional justice relevant for this continent? And if yes, in
1: what ways? Well, thanks for asking that because that uh, actually leads to my uh, current project. So uh, d- definitely, in the last uh, two years, we saw uh, remarkable uh, events in 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 the US where ever since the civil rights period in the sixties, you hadn't seen the confrontation about white supremacy and, and black, uh, um, you know, the absence of accountability uh, of black anti-black repression, George Floyd, the, the remarkable number of shootings by police of, of unarmed uh, uh, black uh, uh, youth and, and demonstrations, right? The black lives matter demonstrations, uh, uh, uh hit the streets it was during the pandemic so the the killing of george floyd was like a truth commission it was something videotaped it was slow mo and and it was something undeniable it was a shared truth that the society could not walk away from and uh, you know uh, uh, biden um made impassioned speeches during that time i really think he came to his own as a political candidate uh uh against uh the uh, other statements by uh uh, Donald Trump and uh, that had really opened the door to uh expressions of of racism and white supremacy and the ultimately would lead to the Confederate flag being paraded through the US Congress in in January 6 2020 so we saw kind of a revivalist uh um you know dimension to all of this where it showed that the ac- that acknowledgment of what the civil war meant and reconstruction was uh, very Fragile in the United States, and really had not happened. So, long story short, there are proposals uh, now in a variety of different contexts. Of course, uh, during that period, the there was the 1619 project, a historical document to show the uh, hundreds of years that it was 400 years plus of history. In the United States of slavery, uh, that it wasn't just since the period of the Constitution or the you know the early founding, but way preceded it. Uh, this is contested. There are a number of states where they have uh, are trying to pass legislation or have public school regulation of libraries that can't. Where the 1619 Project is a banned book, if you can believe it. So we really have an ongoing contestation even about the facts here. There was never a truth commission. There was never any kind of accountability of that sort in, in the U.S. And um, and it wouldn't need to be called Truth Commission. That's kind of a Kafkaesque term. It's a more modern term, but really a commission of inquiry with a, a documentation. And, and now we have bills in Congress. Barbara Lee and Cory Booker have co-sponsored uh, bills to have uh, both uh, acknowledgement and some form of reparations uh, uh, for African Americans. Americans in this country. It's highly controversial, particularly the repa- reparatory part, because it's been so long. But I agree with you. I think that that this is a, an issue, uh, certainly the issue of accountability for slavery and then Jim Crow and segregation is not just historical. We can see the ongoing legacy, and this is really the problem, the ongoing legacy in the security services, in the treatment of, of blacks, in, in the voting, in terms of voting. Voting, uh, in terms of ba- banking, many areas which are now being explored. There are commissions in Congress that are seeking to, to you know, bring this to light. My own, I, I have a book project which I could talk about later, which is kind of a wider theme about acknowledgement and about um, U.S. accountability uh, throughout its history. That is. You know, is has a chapter on the post Civil War period, but really goes back to the founding and to the role of the executive, the importance of having political vision. Um, and I started the book during the Obama administration because I was very capt- captivated by his speeches and by his attempt to single handedly address some of the. Um, the bad uh, uh, blood that had been caused, whether in the Middle East or in the Caribbean, other places uh, uh, as a result of U.S. support for dirty wars. So yeah, that's my current project. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and uh, we are sure to uh, follow it uh, once it's uh, published but talking about um, north america um, uh, i wonder how you see the truth and reconciliation commission in uh, canada well i think
1: uh, be- sorry because go ahead. The, because
0: the because the, um, uh, the um, Exercise of looking at the past here has been rather limited to one issue of uh, colonialism. Yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. I, I think that, uh, and this is part of what happened with my second book, is we started seeing the globalization of transitional justice as a language for justice that preceded political transition or c- could come many years uh, after, and so uh, the claims for uh, indigenous peoples in a, uh, a number of places, Canada, Australia, um, uh, uh, claims regarding colonialism and uh, much of the British Empire, uh, uh, also for restitution. Uh, this broader uh, use of this language uh, started happening right in the last decade or so, last fifteen years, and so that's why I wrote the second book. And certainly, I would say that the um, the uh, work that Canada has done in order to address uh, these issues uh, is an example of of this. Um, broader vocabulary, this broader discourse of justice that transitional justice has, has been deployed to address. And I think it's very interesting, very different than when I first wrote my book, because it's not necessarily... The justice associated with political transition, but um, it's a claim for justice that um, that is thought to uh, to relate to issues of political identity, and certainly for the indigenous peoples, for First Nations, extremely important, right? Um, and in the U.S., uh, as you say, it's been more of a single issue. Uh, we're also seeing it, for example, against the church, right? The claims in in Spain and in other places against and, you know, that happened in Canada as well. The unho- unholy alliance uh, of of the church uh, with, uh, the, in some places, the state uh, regarding uh, indigenous peoples. And it's really, um, these are remarkable and terrible stories uh, once you get into the facts. Uh, we're seeing disappear- issues of disappeared children in Spain, in Franco-Spain, um, that way precede what happened in terms of the disappearance and the kidnapping of children in Argentina, but the church is involved in, in Franco-Spain, and we see a precedent that of how to deal with um, enemies, what they call enemies of the state. And that it's all about controlling the future, controlling the reproduction. And, and very once you get that, you can understand why this was so important as a strategy and so easy to do, you know, in terms of um, how well they could uh, hide and cover up. So all, what we have to do is be able to expose the cover up and in some way make reparations to those families. Very difficult. Uh, and that's ongoing still in Franco. I went to uh, Franco, Spain. I went to Barcelona uh, in May, and I met with the committee, the subcommittee on memory of the Barcelona Bar Association. And they say that Spain, it's easier to get justice for Argentina's disappeared in Spain than it is to address uh, these issues and still have not been able to have uh, these excavations of these lost, uh, disappeared some of them, children, uh, in in Spain, and so it's a really troubling. Uh, and again, a, there was a recent film by Pedro Almodovar that sought to, if you will, illuminate this uh, through film. And 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 so we're seeing a turn to the arts as well here, where politics is is static and frozen. A turn to alternative ways of, of so that's a whole other area where we see transitional justice, uh, uh, the mark of it. Yeah. Indeed.
0: Um, uh, Ruti, you've been uh, involved uh, in this field of transitional justice for decades now. Do you see any developments over time in the way in which transitional justice has been conceptualized as a, as a field?
1: Yes. Uh, you know, as uh, as I mentioned um, a, a little bit uh, before, uh, a real change in terms of the central um Uh, central dimensions at the beginning. I would say in the central dimensions at the beginning, it was the state, it was controlled by the state. So one way or another, if you had weak transitional justice, it reflected a deep state of repression and a lack of of, of actors or institutions to uh, in the state uh, so it was this state controlled and you had a close connection to the political transition today i would say we are way beyond the state and we are beyond the political transition and those two factors make for a very different transitional justice which is really the third point so beyond the state means Substate actors so uh, civil society playing a a much bigger role uh, we see that throughout the world um, and we also see you know as i mentioned youth act, uh, artists uh, in especially in the middle east very important. Uh, and then, uh, and then the whole idea of beyond the transition, anticipatory transitional justice as well as long delayed transitional justice. So, you know, in in the Middle East, we had the 2011 Arab Spring. You know, more or less around that period. Um, And very exciting developments. It looks like uh, backtracking in a number of countries, Egypt, even Tunisia, which was really the kind of the star, uh, but it, we have to remember that this uh, happens in phases and and it's not linear. And it was not linear in the United States either or any of the countries that we think of as democracies today. Uh, and the U.S. now gets, you know, lower marks on democracy, a kind of a more fragile state as January 6th uh, reflected. But... Um, so, the point is that uh, that we're seeing broader phenomena, so, for example, beyond the state, also not just substate but uh, uh, transnational and multilateral. Uh, the UN, uh, the International Criminal Courts, right? The ICTY, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, for Rwanda, and now the International Criminal Court. And what we see, and you know, now with the war in Ukraine, Russia, for example, is that we're we already see a language of cooperation between these institutions and the local actors, and that's a very different picture—a picture of much more, I would say, political sophistication and legal maturity that reflects that these international institutions have been around now for two decades. Very different. Uh, uh, it, it really, my book comes out in two thousand. Um, the uh, ICC gets going just the very beginning in two thousand two. So you know, I didn't have that in the book, and and you and the really the conceptualization is that we are decentering the state as the as the main actor, in, and also broadening the the relevant temporalities. Um, uh, you know, in terms of before transition and, and succeeding it, um, and that points to the phases of transition that, and that as we know and we can see worldwide, perhaps there are openings now with respect to Iran and China this this takes time and it's not a kind of a one-liner uh, in terms of one demonstration or trials or, or exposes yeah.
0: Uh, we've uh, all of the people and the uh, scholars and practitioners working in transitional justice are uh, committed to it. But can you talk about uh, the strengths as well as the weaknesses of uh, transitional justice?
1: Hmm, that's interesting. It, I mean, it, I think it's hard to talk about the strength or weakness of a concept but i would say the following um i would say the that its weakness it relates to its strength so the strength is that it's a very capacious vocabulary uh, that uh, that people have found it useful across disciplines uh, because it isn't just about traditional understandings of law. It's not, and it's not uh, one view of politics, right? Realism or some kind of also utopian idealism. My my interpretive approach in the book was really to look at the kind of relationship of law and politics in these periods and to show that periods of political change departed often from our traditional view of what would be rule of law. And so this uh, discourse has been useful for uh, in a variety of settings because it allows uh, an imaginary that gets beyond the current moment in a number of places, you know, in, in terms of politics as it is, right? Or even law as it is. So that I would say is its um, attraction, its appeal, but it's also its weakness or it's uh, kind of the risks. The risks are uh, the kind of uh, thousand points of light, right? Right that, um, you know, that one could point to having a, a truth commission and and say, well, there's transitional justice in that country and that that's the end of the matter. But we know that it matters uh, who's running the truth commission, uh, what what phenomena is looked at. Uh, there can be truth commissions that are extremely narrow, that it, that uh, don't uh, uh, allow uh, uh, a sustained uh, study of the causes of of the of repression and actually could be used as cover-up or you know a way to distract from uh, from other uh, uh, more important factors or or actors in in a in a period of repression so I would say that 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 the risk is this kind of this idea of seeing it as just the modalities right that transition and and that happened after my book unfortunately there were um, practitioners that applied applied, thought they were applying the concept and emphasized, I think, too much the toolbox. And the UN got going with this. And, you know, the kind of idea that if you had almost a checklist, that if you went through the motions, that then you had uh, justice. But, you know, part of the reason for my use of the term justice and not just law or not just historical commission or some uh, narrow understanding of modalities that you need more pieces in the toolbox in order to be able to evaluate and to have assessment of transitional justice. And that is happening today. There are a number of books and reports uh, that are aiming to evaluate. It's very difficult, right? Because you're talking about many factors in a country and over extended periods of time, probably one of the most difficult, um, uh, Uh, dimensions of transitional justice are the books that have aimed to evaluate these experiments. But, you know, again, that was the risk was that people would associate uh, some of these applications as Equal or synonymous with the broader concept of transitional justice, so I'm still in the game to try to uh, uh, to try to you know promote a the, uh, a more sensitive and un, uh, understanding uh, of the vocabulary or at least the discourse that that I think makes sense. Yeah.
0: Um, if you were to update the book today what would you add or what would you subtract from uh, your argument um, what what was left out of the book uh, initially uh, did, you, did you include all your ideas or there's something that uh, was not uh, was not uh, reflected in the book and how would you how would you adapt the book to all these changes that you recognize uh, uh, having um, having um, uh, put their mark on the field?
1: Well, I've been invited many times to update the book, which I do, <laughs> do not want to do. Uh, I think the book stands uh, on its own uh, for, as the book that came out of that period because it was, it's really interpretive. And so it's interpreting the phenomena at that time. I would say that what the book doesn't have reflects uh, the uh, historicity of the book, which is it's published in 2000. So for example, since I submitted it, I would say uh, 96, 97, uh, there's very little about South Africa, for example, in, in the book um, and, nor other developments that might've happened at that time. Uh, There's less internationalism in the book because I don't have – uh, the uh, the examples of the ICC, uh, nor very much about uh, the uh, obviously the Balkans, etc. So that uh, there are mentions, uh, but uh, that's why I published "Globalizing Transitional Justice" thereafter, uh, which was uh, uh, a you know a monograph that in in part uh, has some prior essays, but sought to weave together the changes that we saw in the late '90s. Which undoubtedly was a very exciting period as well for this globalizing dimension uh, uh of the of the book. Um, you know again if I were to re, uh, re rethink it I think perhaps you know one edit editing change and again I don't know how I would rewrite it but uh, it was such an uh, um, uh, herculean task at the time and I really think each chapter really could have been its own book so that could have been <laughs> maybe one way to, to deal with it I had a box in the closet for each, Each chapter, a a literal box. Uh, uh, And uh, but what I would say is that um, uh, that writing it in terms of the different um, legal approaches or uh, trans legal approaches like constitutionalism and criminal justice and so on, perhaps led the reader to focus too much on modalities, and so that, uh, and and seeing the 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 book that way, I I don't know how I would change it to, uh, but I would perhaps have more of a cautionary um, uh, uh, cautionary dimension to uh, reducing those concepts to. The actual, you know, to this view of modalities—that what was that issue—is kind of an election of of, of tools. Uh, uh, somehow that came out uh, in practitioner work. I don't know if if how much my book contributed to that or other other um, uh, political needs. Uh, you know, at the level of the United Nations and uh, changes that were occurring at the time. And remember that we are in a time of metrics and big data. So. Part of what we see is that the kind of transitional justice that gets done is what it can be measured. Uh, trials can be measured, for example. Reports can be measured. So this is also not something that I could control, but it's something that on re- a potent reflection is, is something to to think about, right? Uh, uh, this, the book was pre-algorithms, uh, uh, <laughs>
0: That's, yeah. a good, that's a good phrase yeah <laughs> Th- thinking about the future I, I was uh, um, uh, it just occurred to me to ask you how do you see transitional justice uh, applied after the war in Ukraine what are the best methods or what are because we talked about the toolkit of transitional justice but what what's the conception of justice there you know do you see that um um, this is the opportunity of the International Criminal Court to, um, to take action, or I've seen a lot of other proposals for other courts uh, and tribunals being, uh, uh, being um, established. What is your view on, the, on transitional justice related to the war in Ukraine?
1: Well, we're certainly seeing the language of justice being deployed to uh, delegitimate, right, uh, uh, and f- fairly clearly Russia's aggression in in this war. And we saw that, you know, we c- can certainly see that it's a war of conquest, and and um, you know, even under. The traditional law of war, this would be considered to be uh, you know, a huge violation, aggression, right? And the uh, International Criminal Court recently um, had adopted language that allowed prosecution of aggression. However, neither party is a member of the court. Uh, Ukraine opened uh, a case, uh, but it, because of the rules at the ICC, aggression can't be a part of the ICC uh, prosecutions. They can prosecute. War crimes and crimes against humanity, um, uh, which they're already talking about uh, with Ukraine. Ukraine has its own procurator general, and that and documentation is happening locally as well at by the state as well as NGOs that are on the ground there. The 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 very difficult thing, and I want I'll come back to the the importance of the aggression charge in a second. But the very important thing in a wartime situation is conserving the evidence. That's really the hardest part. And so we we see that uh, both uh, international NGOs, Amnesty has been in the region, several times. Uh, uh, The head of emergencies there, uh, Joanne Mariner, Donatella Rivera, they've uh, gotten a lot of documentation of what's going on there, uh, as well as, as I said, the Ukrainians on the ground. And it's very uh, troubling, very, very distressing to see the evidence of war crimes and crimes against humanity in places where the Russians have withdrawn. So this evidence needs to be preserved for any uh, judgment, for any uh, jurisdiction. Um, having said that, what's very interesting is that uh, you and also you have the International Court of Justice involved on a genocide case that Ukraine has filed against Russia. So you really have a number of uh, international and domestic institutions as well as NGOs uh, that are very committed to the case and the. US uh, ambassador for uh, global justice um, Beth von Schack is also um, uh, cooperating and uh, kind of a multiplier effect to, as she puts it to capacitate the actors on the ground uh, with uh, assistance of a legal of a legal sort. Um, having said that, you know I think there will be issues you know going forward about, uh, what's the priority? And uh, the good thing is that the ICC prosecutor has said uh, that he's committed to cooperation, because in many ways, there's a multiplicity of actors here. Uh, and um, and that's a new theme, I would say, going forward, um, that, you know, it's uh, in the past, it seemed very dichotomous that either the court took um, jurisdiction, applying a principle of complementarity where they would decide whether the local actors were willing and able, and if they were not, then the court would weigh in. Here, he's talking about cooperation, and so I think perhaps it's kind of a new day um, uh, that this war is uh, ushering, in a new day, and also he's a new prosecutor, so he has a different Different approach than um, the prior prosecutors, uh, whether Luis Moreno Ocampo, who really had to establish the, the court in the in the beginning, and 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 his deputy, and then the successor prosecutor Fatou Bensouda. But for aggression, which is the main crime here, um, there uh, there has been a, a call for a new uh, institution because that would involve judging Putin and his uh, henchmen. You know the surrounding. Um, uh, 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 leaders that have uh, that have weighed in with him. It's a close knit group that made this decision. And, um, but of course, if we were able to do that, the war would be kind of over. I mean, it would, you know, to be able to do this. There's been a call for it. Uh, Philippe Sands uh, uh, and also others in the UK have been very active on on this. And I understand that the EU has uh, finally joined uh, that call for uh for such a tribunal, I think there's a sense that that Putin you know is so far gone that whatever um, whatever uh, caution other countries had about about this uh, you know call for judgment now seems to have fallen by the wayside. So we'll see we'll see what the future brings. you know my own concern is that we uh, that we uh, restore, and, you know, I think this is a good note to, you know, end on, at least in terms of the Ukraine Russia is that what when I identified the term transitional justice, it wasn't just about backward looking retrospective justice about, let's say. Uh, punishing those who committed war crimes or restituting land or or some form of reparations, all of which are on the table uh, right now for, for Ukraine. And there's a call to use, for example, sanctions against oligarchs for reparations. For So there's a lot of innovative thinking. But what I'm not hearing is the forward-looking part, which is what transitional justice could be associated with peace, with a conflict resolution. And this is a new dimension for transitional justice that we've seen in the last decade, which is the importance of thinking about the peace and thinking about justice as a, a, a dimension of that. Um, and so kind of a just peace, if you will. And 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 this is where I would like to see more thinking going forward. At least I'm, I'm trying to think about it. Um, these are not easy questions. It's kind of an, a, a very um, ambitious project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Ukraine so far has been, uh, has found it difficult to even think about peace negotiations, thinking that this would freeze the current political moment. Uh, uh, But, you know, we have to somehow think about the future and and how this war is going to end. Thank you very much. Um, One last question.
0: What are your future plans in the field of transitional justice? You talked about uh, um, a book uh, project you are working on, but um, uh, I wonder whether you can elaborate on
1: this. Yes, yes. Um, well, so in terms of my book, I have uh, the, it's called Writing Our Global Wrongs. It should be forthcoming in 2023. And it's a look at the role of the US executive in uh, across US history. It's, it started with Obama's world tour in the last year of his last term. And then I went historical from there to see whether he was the only one or whether there were other kind of more visionary American executives. So that is the book. Um, There are a number of other projects that I've been involved in with other scholars. Um, I, I have a piece coming out. Uh, Together with Dr. Yavor Rangelov, who is uh, with the LSC, and he uh, and I have uh, written a piece on uh, called The Justice Archive, which is about the rise of digital archives and transitional justice. And... um, And it's very interesting because given the passage of time, since the uh, trials that we've been talking about, uh, whether in Latin America or elsewhere, uh, since the truth commissions, there's a question of how to preserve those reports and what the next stage is really uh, uh, for the future. Because again, this question of for the future. So there we, we try to conceptualize a role for the Justice Archive. And we look at two regions, the Balkans and Latin America. So that will be coming out very shortly in the next issue of the London review of international law. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So we will continue to be doing work on the justice archive in, in, uh, in former Yugoslavia. Uh, and the other work that I've been doing is, uh, a project of kind of, uh, intellectual, uh, um, uh, genealogy, which is together with a an, an author in Latin America, uh, co-author Valeria V. Weiss, uh, on the role of Latin America in transitional justice, and that and, and that is to retrieve and restore Latin America to the global history of transitional justice. And because of language barriers, uh, very often, even uh, uh, even when we talk about uh, 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 what is international law, it tends to be American dominated. There's European international law and there's American international law, but Latin America does not get included in American international law. Similarly, Latin America, even though they were among the pioneers in this area, are not there. And so this is part of an intellectual project of restoring uh, Latin America to the genealogy globally of transitional justice. So those are two projects. I'm also very interested in the Middle East, uh, very troubling uh, developments in Israel-Palestine. I go there every summer and I run a colloquium that is sponsored by Friedgal on... um, Transitional justice in Israel Palestine. I'm also interested in Cuba, and I'm hopeful for change there. Between in the U S. approach, so a lot on the table, and uh, Korea, of course, Unified Korea is coming. Uh, so, and I have a book that I co edited on transitional justice in Unified Korea. So, it's there's never a dull moment. I would say, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. These are very <laughs> ambitious uh, projects.
0: <laughs> well, um Professor Taitel, thank you very much for um uh, this um interview and all the insights uh, uh, you've provided uh, I want to remind our listeners that our guest today at the New Books uh, Network was profi- Professor ruti Taitel from New York uh, Law School who graciously agreed to talk to us about her 2000 uh, book uh, Transitional uh, Justice, an Oxford U- uh, University Press publication Thank you and hope we'll talk again soon Goodbye. Thank you.